the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome back. As we head into hour three, our last hour before uh, sending you off on your uh, on your onto your holidays, I uh, thought we'd do something a little bit different here today than usual, and it is a delight to be able to do so. I was having a discussion with a friend early this morning about the stress in our world and uh, the stress in our society, and he was telling me about this book that was making all kinds of rounds and all kinds of news about the year 1968, the year that broke politics is the name of the book, the year that broke politics, collusion and chaos in the presidential election of 1968. As much as we all like and uh, love history here in academics, I thought I'd reach out to the author after I read several positive reviews, and son of a gun we got him, Professor Luke Nichter. Thank you for joining us, sir. Happy holiday to you, and thanks. We appreciate you breaking the the dressing of the turkey to be with us. Uh, Well, uh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for being here. Um, First-time guest. I do this uh, with most most all of my first-time guests. Tell the audience a little bit about yourself, any autobiographical sketch you would like, how you came to be doing what you're doing. Oh, I suppose one day I'll look back and it'll be linear and, and I'll make sense. But uh, it, it doesn't feel that way when you're, you're walking through the eye of the storm. Yeah. Uh, but, there, there's, but there's not much about my background that suggests what I'd be doing for a living today. I was kind of a blue-collar, lower-middle-class kid uh, from northwest Ohio, uh, first-generation college grad in my family. You know, everybody was in a union. Everybody complained about a union from time to time. Uh, I don't recall a single political conversation in my family growing up. And here, as I do politics, at least political history, for a living, uh, got a Ph.D. at Bowling Green State University, uh, proud of a re- my regional public you know, education in history, uh, did a stint on Capitol Hill, a stint as a research assistant in, in the British House of Commons, uh, and then have been, for the last 15 years, kind of solid academia. I've had a couple of uh, uh, government appointments part-time, in historic preservation, and now on the government's Freedom of Information Act advisory committee. I was at 13 years at Texas A&M on the faculty, and now in my third year on the faculty at Chapman University in Orange County, California. And what do I really do? I guess I'd say I do kind of the political presidential history of the 1960s. So I write about a period of time that it seems like we already know everything there is to know, yet a lot of new evidence is being released. So every book I tend to write about something that it seems like we know everything there is, and basically I blow it up. Uh, and so that brings us to the latest one. Well, wonderful. Uh, the Year That Broke Politics, Collusion and Chaos in the Presidential Election of 1968. I, um, I, lo- I love studying the year 1968. Many people have talked about it. Uh, I have written about it as Annus Horribilis, an, an awful year in many, many, many respects. And I guess I, I want to get into that and some comparisons to where we are today, including the part at which you are expert, the politics, the contrasting and comparative politics between that year and this. But first of all, it might just be interesting for me to ask you, in doing this research, you were mentioning you know, people think they know a lot about 
a certain era or period of time, especially since so many people lived through the 60s, year of my birth. Um, what did you? What were you most surprised in, in discovering and in your research? A few things that you might have discovered that surprised you, raised eyebrows. Well, I guess from the outset, you know, we tend to remember historical moments at pivotal anniversaries, uh-huh. often a 50th anniversary. I mean, here we are. 60th just anniversary 60th. today, right? Yeah, right. You got it. Yeah. Exactly right. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. And except 2018, you know, for 1968, sort of came and went quietly. Yeah. And I expected this commemoration of some kind. I mean, it was sort of a dystopian year, mm-hmm. so maybe a bit of a different kind of commemoration. But it, no, we didn't really didn't have it. Mm-hmm. And, and I was surprised by it. I, I, I'm kind of an archive rat. Yeah. Uh, and, and history, the writing of history for me, I, I say, is a full-contact sport. Mm-hmm. For 10 years now, I've traveled 100 nights a year to archives, historic sites, and for interviews with former officials. And, and I noticed I'm seeing all kinds of new things come out about this period, and I thought maybe it's time for a fresh look. So I think that's kind of what set me down this path initially. But out of all the interviews I did, you know, one in particular – I think really challenged me produce, to, to produce the book that, that you see. And it was um, in December of 2017, I had a meeting with former Vice President Walter Mondale. Mm-hmm. And Mondale at that time, I was going to Minneapolis to look at Hubert Humphrey's papers and interview Humphrey people on that side of the campaign. And, and Mondale was Humphrey's co-chair in 68, although sometimes that's more of a ceremonial than, than a real duty. Yeah. And, but what, what I didn't know was he, and it wasn't in his memoir, is that he said, Humphrey and I became very close in the 1970s, and we discussed 1968 many times. And so I felt as I was talking to him, almost like I was getting Humphrey's side mm-hmm. of what happened that year, because really, he never really talked about it during his lifetime. Mm-hmm. And, and at the very end of the conversation, uh, Mondale said, well, you want to know what my bottom line is? And I said, yes. He said, Lyndon Johnson absolutely did not want Hubert Humphrey to win in 1968. No and then he repeated it a second time. And I was almost knocked off my yeah. chair because that's very different than, yeah. than, I don't know how many books have been written about the 60s or yeah. 68, but a lot of shelves full of books. And so he really challenged me from that moment forward to, to re, recenter Lyndon Johnson in, in, in the story. So many write him off as a lame duck after March 31st when he withdraws from the race. And instead, what Mondale seemed to be suggesting was that LBJ remained just as important but he simply shifted his energy from the ballot to his, in, to his legacy, mm-hmm. to influencing the choice of his successor. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of led me to different kinds of questions to ask officials and family members. And I had official cooperation from all four sides, Johnson, Humphrey, Nixon, and Wallace, mm-hmm. and really go a different way mm-hmm. uh, that ended up with this, the book that you see. Uh, we're talking to Professor Luke Nichter, N-I-C-H-T-E-R, if you want to look up this book, or better yet, buy it. Uh, I ordered it today, The Year That Broke Paul. Politics, collusion and chaos in the presidential election of 1968. Professor, did Lyndon Johnson not want Humphrey to win because he wanted to do a kind of I told you so? Um, did he want did he want to say, OK, if you can't have me, you can't have any Democrat? Was that the was that the animating force behind that desire? It, to me, that is the big question. Yeah. Uh, and, and there's no simple answer. And, 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 you know, I'm not afraid to say I don't know. Yeah. Or, or at least I don't know yet. Yeah. Uh, and, and the next book I'm working on is taking the ideas of this one to now the whole Johnson presidency. Okay. 
which is fun, but a daunting task. Yeah. It hasn't been tried in 20 years. No, there have been a lot, anybody. but it's been a while, right? I'm in terms of a of, comprehensive yeah, book, you've got to go back 20, like 25 years. On yeah. Caro, left readers in this fourth volume, yeah. the opening months of the presidency. <laughs> yeah, to go right. back to Randall Woods and Robert Dalek, you got to yeah. go back to the beginning of this, uh, you know, 2000, the late 90s, you know, that. And, and, of course, a lot of the records have been released then, so it's an even bigger job now than it would all the Johnson tapes, for example. Yep. Um, and, and so I, I guess the way I would answer your question is the Johnson people, the way they put it to me was, you know, Johnson believed to be president, you had to have a killer instinct. Mm-hmm. And, and, and after all, the president is the commander in chief. Yeah. Uh, and you have to be able to make, in some cases, you know, life or death decisions in a moment's notice uh, based on imperfect evidence yep. and certainly an imperfect timetable yep. before all the facts are in. Mm-hmm. And he ultimately, I think, well, well, he had a good alliance with his vice president, Hubert Humphrey, during that sort of high tide of the Civil Rights era, Civil Rights Act of 64, Voting Rights Act of 65, and so much other, you know, domestic legislation. The OBJ Library used to sell a T-shirt with the names of all these bills, and it covered <laughs> the entire shirt. But by 68, when it came to legacy, I think he ultimately sensed that the party, the Democratic Party, was moving to the left. Mm-hmm. Whether it was actually moving to the left or it was a relative move, a lot of conservative Democrats were either becoming Republicans, uh, Reagan, Ronald Reagan, uh, Strom Thurmond, you know, others like Richard, Richard Russell didn't switch, but I think they were probably a lot were split ticket voting mm-hmm. by the late 60s. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that means the, the center of gravity of the party was beginning to shift left. And I think Johnson saw he was likely to be replaced by somebody, if in his own party, by someone who's likely to end the war as quickly as possible in Vietnam. And, and Johnson felt he'd be blamed yeah. for being the first president to lose a war, yeah. but also that he would be outspent on his great society programs. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, there's something in politics about being succeeded by someone within your own party mm-hmm. that makes those kind of intra-family disputes that much more visceral. Yeah. Because if you're succeeded by the other yeah. party and then attacked by them, yeah. it forces your party to come to your defense. Yep. You saw this with Obama to yep. Trump. I was just going to say, yeah. Yeah, and you see kind and of so an interesting what... bridge with Obama to taking over the hump of Trump to Biden. Let me take you got a, it. Yeah, let me take a quick commercial break, if I might, Professor. We'll come back and pick up on that question about... Hubert Humphrey, and then I want to get into 68 a little bit more, some of the uh, some of the awfulness of it, and then, of course, the presidential election. Luke Nichter is our guest. His book, The Year That Broke Politics, Collusion and Chaos in the Presidential Election of 1968. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Professor Luke Nichter is our guest, N-I-C-H-T-E-R, his book out this year, The Year That Broke Politics, Collusion and Chaos in the Presidential Election of 1968. 68. We're talking a little bit about LBJ and Hubert Humphrey. By the way, Professor, would it be um, fair to say, I, I suppose it depends on where you stand on these kinds of things, but I've always thought Hubert Humphrey was an underappreciated politician. Uh, I, I, I always, I'm on the right, but I always liked him. There was just something about him I always liked. He stood to me as a as a kind of a happy he kind of reminded me as the democratic jack kemp if you will who i think also was underappreciated in his time well i think hubert humphrey had a lot of admirable qualities you know you know i mean so often 
what passes for political history these days has lost almost all historical empathy okay. for, for its figures. Okay. I mean, we're so quick to judge people yeah. by our own standards that we've really lost touch with history in so many ways. Hubert Humphrey, I think, was more than just an also-ran, yeah. you know, which is usually the label they get yeah. uh, in this case. He, I think he's someone who could have been president, maybe mm-hmm. in a different era mm-hmm. without Vietnam, a little more domestic tranquility. You don't have a lot of that in 68. Maybe 60 yeah. was his best chance of the presidency before he went down to defeat uh, to the Kennedys in, in the West Virginia primary and others. Yeah. But, you know, he had this admirable quality where you could eviscerate him in a public forum or a debate. And, and he somehow had this poise where he would say, you know, I'd like to thank you for calling that to my attention. Huh. I, mean, I, can't, I, I can't imagine myself <laughs> reacting that way, you know, in that moment. But I think I really think that was Hubert Humphrey. I mean, that doesn't necessarily mean he should have been president. But I think in general, this, he was a good person. He and stood he for a better a politics. Attributes to politics. Yeah, he stood for a better kind of politics. Would that be a fair thing to say? And, and yes, and he believed in institutions. Yes. yes. Uh, and, and these days, I think when so many people have lost faith in institutions, whether it be anywhere in the government, uh, higher education, uh, and national media, organized religion, with an emphasis on, on organized, you know, I think he believed in institutions and wanted to strengthen them. You talked about the election of 1968 in the previous segment with me about uh, an interesting transition of much of the Democratic Party. And I was I, I wanted to ask you, something. I should have known this and I don't know it. Is it knowable? Did George Wallace, who made his first run for president in 1968, did he draw more from Republicans or Democrats, would you guess or no? This is interesting. I think the conventional wisdom going into this book was that he drew more from Nixon. Okay. But, but a lot of times that claim has been made by critics yeah. who, who want to paint Nixon with this sort of Southern strategy, yeah. race-based appeals to the people in the South. Right. And when I talked to the Wallace people, I was surprised because they said they almost all said, We'd never thought that. We I thought would. we were drawing more from Humphrey. Yeah, uh, and, and I would say one more thing about that. You know, Humphrey's, uh, one of his key strategists was Vic Fingerhut, who's still around. Mm-hmm. And, and he said, this is complete nonsense. Mm-hmm. He, he said, uh, in, the, in the final, you know, three weeks of the campaign, eight out of ten voters, you know, Humphrey was way behind a few weeks to go, and then made it close, at least in the popular vote. He said, I estimated at the time that eight out of ten of the late switchers, as he called it, yeah. eight out of ten came from Wallace. Yeah, now think about what that means yeah. from, from the candidate who supposedly is against civil rights right. to the leading figure on civil rights. Yeah. From the candidate who was the only one really talking about fighting and winning in Vietnam to the candidate who is promising the quickest timetable to get out of Vietnam. Yeah. Uh, so lots of interesting things must be going on there. Is it fair to say, yes, of course, Hubert Humphrey was very well known for his uh, efforts early on in the Democratic Party in promoting civil rights. But it's fair to say, too, and I don't know how much of a thing Nixon made of it in 68, but it's fair to say, too, that Nixon was also beloved by African-American voters for many, many years. He had had a good relationship with them. Isn't that also fair to say? Well, uh, it, it, I mean, Nixon was was friends with uh, Reverend Martin, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King. Yeah. He was friends with Jackie Robinson, yeah. other key figures. Yeah. He had he had black civil rights advisors. He 1960. Imagine this. 
the Republican ticket, Nixon Lodge, promised an African-American in the cabinet yeah. if they wow. were elected in 1960. And I think he got a pretty I think he got a pretty good portion of the vote. I can't remember off the top of my head, but something around 30 percent seems to bring it uh, It's something like that. Yeah. I think yeah. the latest polls that I'm seeing now for Republicans, especially Donald Trump, I think he's pulling the highest right right now since, since Nixon yeah. in yeah. 1960. I think that's right. Uh, of course, it all and the Republican Party tended to do very well with the African American. I mean, it was the party of the African Americans until basically, I guess, that race in 1964 kind of put the kibosh on it for a very long time. Let's turn to, if I might, Professor. And of course, anything I say that you disagree with, you're the expert, so feel free to correct <laughs> me. I'll play the Hubert Humphrey on this <laughs> on this. Uh, Professor Nichter, um, 1968, uh, roiling year, awful stuff going on. It's the year, and I'll miss some things, and you tell me if you think anything I majorly missed here, I, that I missed in a major way. Ted Offensive, Quezon, obviously the assassinations of Kennedy and uh, Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King. Uh, student riots, I think Columbia University, uh, civil riots or, you know, urban riots throughout the country. Really, perhaps one would have thought one of our worst years ever before 9-11, maybe, huh? I would say yes. And really one of these years that whether it be the national media or just the feeling of people watching, say, the Chicago Convention, the Democrats in 1968, almost like the sky has fallen. Yeah. Uh, and I think, again, people in recent years are, are saying similar kinds of things. But 68 might have been that, that most recent year where it really seemed as though kind of, I think the status quo and politics didn't seem to have the answers. People in both parties were looking for other options. Uh, I, I think they're, they're, it doesn't exactly repeat but I think there are many similarities. Well, I have to take a commercial break because the big thing I'd like to, if I can, when I can, you're okay on time, right? I can keep you a little bit longer here? Yes, Okay, of great. The thing I do want to talk to, I talked to a lot of people who were around in the 60s, college professors at the time and, and so forth, and they said then that they weren't sure the country could survive that year. And I want to get your sense of that sentiment when we come back. Is it a little bit exaggerated in light of a rearview mirror? Is it um, accurate? Uh, let me do that with you when we come right back. I, I have more time. How much more time do I have? Oh, I'm sorry. I, I missed my clock here. <laughs> sorry, Professor. Well, that was the sentiment. We don't have to go to a commercial break yet. That was the sentiment that people said. They weren't sure this country would survive 1968. Was that an accurate sentiment in retrospect? I, 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 yes and no. I, I think yes, because it seemed like the institutions of the nation were stressed. Okay. I mean, the dashboard is lit up with red lights yep. for all the reasons you mentioned uh, and, more. and more. But I think what, what surprised me was that behind the scenes, you know, one of the lessons of history, every week I think we are all conditioned by our news feeds. We're making sort of instant analysis about things that we observe. And I think one of the lessons of history is that there's an awful lot that goes on behind the scenes that we don't know yet. Uh, and, And in this particular case in 1968, while the institutions of the nation were stressed, I think that created the opportunity for informal channels of diplomacy. Because one of the, the biggest findings, uh, I, you know, I wish I could say I was so brilliant to have planned this in the book, uh, but the, uh, I, the, the, some of the new evidence that's in the book includes Reverend Billy Graham's diary. Oh, hold that thought. Uh, let, let me go to break on that. Let, let's pick up sure. on that when we come let's right back. 
Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Professor Luke Nichter is my guest, N-I-C-H-T-E-R. His book, The Year That Broke Politics, Collusion and Chaos in the Presidential Election of 1968. As awful as people thought of 1968 as being, Professor, you were just about to say there was an interesting discovery you made uh, with regard to Reverend Billy Graham. Yeah, in terms of the new evidence in the book, there's, there's different kinds, but this is probably the most stunning thing that's in the book which really allows me to make the most controversial argument that I make in the book, that Johnson ultimately preferred Nixon as his successor. Mm-hmm. Uh, 2018, two months after I saw Mondale, the story I told earlier, yeah. the Reverend Billy Graham died in February of 2018 at age 99. Yeah. And that triggered the beginning of a process to open his 70 years of personal papers, which continues to this day as we talk. Uh-huh. And the Grams allowed me to use uh, what he called his VIP notebooks, which are basically his diaries. Mm-hmm. And they begin, it's 50-some volumes of contact with presidents, mm-hmm. uh, in some cases verbatim conversations with presidents, beginning in 1950 with Harry Truman, mm-hmm. going all the way to 2014 with Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. And the Grams allowed me, this is the first book to feature these diaries, and they allowed me to use the parts for the 1968 election there's a chapter in the book called Messenger, because that was Graham's role in 1968. He operated as a, they call it a back channel, an intermediary, a messenger between Johnson, Nixon, California Governor Ronald Reagan, uh, between former President Eisenhower, Humphrey, Wallace. He, he knew all these figures an average of about 20 years in 1968, just as he was reaching the peak of his profession and they were reaching theirs. And, and it contains content. I'll, I'll give you one example. Just after Labor Day in 1968, the traditional kickoff of the high point of the campaign before today when campaigns kind of go on and on forever, yeah. Graham passed a message from Nixon to Johnson in the Oval Office in September of 1968 that said, under a President Nixon, now that's still somewhat right. speculative, <laughs> right. in September, right. Right. Um, he, he says, uh, that as president, Nixon pledged to LBJ that he would not criticize him by name. He would give him credit for Vietnam when it was all over. He would consult with LBJ in retirement and do everything Nixon could do to give LBJ a good place in history. Mm-hmm. And when I discovered that, I thought that was just incredible. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure there's anything else quite like it, in, at least in modern U.S. history, where Nixon has given Johnson, at this point, all the ammunition to blow up his campaign. I mean, imagine if that had leaked, yeah. unless, of course, of course, it didn't leak. And, we, and, and it su- certainly suggests that this kind of be, began to thaw the ice between these longtime two rivals in politics. Johnson was, I would guess, the, the number one politician in the Democratic Party. Nixon had been the number one on the Republican Party. And that the ice begins to thaw between these true great rivals at the instigation of their mutual friend, Billy Graham. It's just stunning. So That is stunning. How good of a read, a feel, do you think Nixon had of the American culture? I know he was seen as kind of a square in some respects and not hip and with it, given the 60s and what we know of the popular culture of the 60s. But what you're telling to me makes me kind of want to ask, wasn't his campaign thing that year something like bring us together or something like that? Uh, how, maybe he saw the sense, the need that this country was unraveling without that kind of pacifistic point of view in politics. Maybe, maybe, I don't know. I, I think Nixon had two great strengths in 1968. I think he was a more mature, studied, 
centrist version of his 1960 self. Uh-huh. Uh, he said in 1960, in all of eight years under Eisenhower, I never had time to read anything yeah. in office. Yeah. And so he had those years, as they're called, from the 60s. He, he lost narrowly to Kennedy and Johnson in 60, yeah. more decisively to Pat Brown for the California governorship in 62. Yeah. And then he had this period of about five or six years to study, to read, to think, to contemplate, to learn from his mistakes, which mm. is not an easy thing to, for any of us to do. Right. And he came back, he was simply a better candidate. Yeah. He knew how to more campaign more efficiently. He knew how to get better turnout. He knew if, if media defeated him in 60. Think about the Kennedy-Nixon yeah, debates. Yeah. It helped him to win in 68. Uh-huh. Uh, and I, I would say the second point is he really rode that middle lane. I mean, you look at it, any campaign, any election year, and you, if you show me the candidate who, who sort of has the middle lane, you, you have the candidate who probably has the widest path to the presidency. And that was Nixon in, in 68 with Wallace to his right, yep. Humphrey to his left. Yep. It, Humphrey didn't run as a surrogate for his president, Johnson. Yep. That was Nixon yep. in terms of he had the closest policies, not just to public opinion, but to Johnson's policy on the war. And even that he no more ended the Great Society as president than, than Eisenhower did the New Deal That's when he right. came into office. That's right. No. And he sort of Right. He sort of shaded it, the Great Society, yeah. in, in a republic. Instead of sort of welfare on top of welfare, he talked about black tax credits yeah. and of home ownership yeah. and in private investment in, in urban areas. He he didn't he didn't cut the size of government to the consternation of many conservatives. Yeah. The government grew following the period of the Great Society. So but, I think Nixon really capitalized on all these trends. Let me pick up on that, and we come right back. <laughs> My producer likes to have this kind of fun. Our guest is Professor Luke Nichter, N-I-C-H-T-E-R. His book came out this year, The Year That Broke Politics, Collusion and Chaos in the Presidential Election of 1968. Professor, I'm enjoying this very much, so thank you again for doing this right before the holiday. Very much appreciate it. 1968, going into Miami. I haven't read it in a long time. I remember liking the book a great deal, loving the book Nixon Agonistes by Gary Wills. My memory is that there was uh, a little bit of an effort for possibly Reagan to be nominated at uh, one point. How big was Reagan in 1968, looking back, going into the convention and in the campaign generally? It's funny. You know, there are still some 64 Goldwater conservatives around. And when you talk to them today— you would think in the opposite uh-huh. in ter- of what happened. Yeah. I mean, they lost in one of the four greatest landslides of the 20th century, yet you talk to them, they get this twinkle in their eye and kind of a wry smile. They talk as if they won in 64 yeah. yeah. because they finally got a conservative, yeah. you know, nominated after Nixon and then Eisenhower and Dewey before that. Yeah. And I think they really wanted Reagan in 68. Yeah. But he'd just been elected governor in 66, yep. You know, there was concern about whether he was really sufficiently battle-tested. And I think pragmatic Republicans, they they wanted a victory Mm -hmm. in 68. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were desperate to win back the White House. And I think, you know, Nixon, what Nixon did was, Nixon, in effect, was sort of like time travel. Mm -hmm. Nixon wasn't tied to the chaos of the decade. He wasn't tied to the war. He wasn't tied to call it the negative consequences of the Great Society. And voting for Nixon was kind of like rewinding the clock back to the 1950s and, and someone who could get us out of that, turn the noise level down. Yeah. You know, and that's what Republicans and Democrats wanted. Yet Reagan is a bit to Nixon like Newsom now you know, is to Biden. Yes. Sort of looking over his yes. shoulder. Yes. And if he makes any big mistakes, 
don't worry, I'm ready to move in. But Nixon didn't make any major mistakes in 68. That's an interesting comparison. I was going to ask you, and you kind of you you got to it there. I was going to ask you, I, I, they're both from California. Um, they're both in the Republican Party. They're both looming large in many ways. I don't see – I can't think of a lot of pictures of them together. How do they view one another? Well, this is interesting because if, if you know, the history of the 60s is really just being rewritten yeah. now, yeah. and the history of the 70s really hasn't been written yet, uh, the 80s is still being actively declassified. It's uh-huh. going to be some year. It could be the next generation that writes that history. Yeah. So there's a lot that we don't know, and, and the Reagan archive really may, remains untapped. You know, I've seen some records from 66 that have been opened, but the Reagan materials are largely unopened in terms of the 60s, the 68 campaign, his personal papers, except for those Reagan diaries, and, of course, uh, most of Nancy Reagan's records. So I think in terms of what he really thought, you know, we're going to have to take a rain check on that question. I think they were friendly rivals. I think you could argue that if if Reagan was a response to Carter, who was a response to Ford and Nixon, in a way, you know, we wouldn't have gotten the Reagan that we did without the Nixon that we did. Uh, so I think they did kind of uh, need each other in a kind of symbiotic, you know, political way. Yeah, yeah. Okay, thank you for that. Let me do a compare and contrast. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm not anything like credentialed or the historian or professional, even as you are, but I, I, I have a lot of fun with history, and I think it's hugely important. I do my part with it. And I kind of think of the last five years, you know, and the tumult we have gone through as a country. A president uh, that was criticized by half the party as being a fascist for four years. Uh, the COVID, uh, uh, the, the COVID virus, uh, George Floyd and the BLM riots, the January, uh, excuse me, the 2020 election, the January 6th riots, other things. It seems like an awful lot, the invasion of Ukraine, the Gaza-Israel war. We're going through an awful lot of stressors here. And I've always believed in our capacity for self-renewal and recovery. But how would you compare that to how bad 1963 to 1968, let's say, was between the John Kennedy assassination and the end of 1968, which was only five years as well? Well, you're really not holding back at any of the hard questions. I'm sorry. (laughs) You know, no, 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 no. It's I think a, this is yeah. you take the point. This is a though, right? thought-provoking issue, and yeah. I think history buffs sit around, and this is the kind of thing they're talking about. Yeah. You know, I, I do think there are a lot of similarities. You know, I think I think we're missing two big ones okay. though okay. in this day today. Okay. Uh, I would say number one, um, the 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 Vietnam draft yeah. in, in the 1960s, yeah. which we're not just talking about, uh, at the time, the nation's longest war with a half million troops right. stationed in Southeast Asia, but what the draft meant domestically, yep. tearing apart our, you know, tearing apart generations younger from older, our co- setting our college campuses afire. Yep. Uh, but, but I think that's one issue. And then I would think the degree of violence. You mentioned earlier the assassinations yeah. of Martin Luther King yeah. and Robert Kennedy. Thankfully, we haven't quite gotten to that point, right. you know, today. Right. Because, you know, you look at that dystopian year of 68, and there still is. I mean, it's not really in the book, but there is kind of this idea of optimism. And I, I guess I'm a bit of an optimist sure. in the sense that we got through it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and everybody talks today, at least in the, some of the mainstream media, talk about uh, they're worried about our democracy. Right. 
well, our democracy isn't this artificial thing that we create. Our democracy is, is people. It's yep. you and me and millions of others. Yep. And we're surprisingly adaptable. Uh, and I think, you know, we know how to turn the noise level down in Washington and ignore what goes on. And, and we look after our communities and our churches and our neighborhoods. And we find a way to get through this thing. Yes. Uh, and so I think people are surprisingly resilient. That's one of the reasons I thought maybe it is worse than the 60s, because I don't know that we have some of those same institutional cohesive. I don't know if we still have that epoxy. You look at church attendance, you look at marriage rate, you look at the kinds of things Americans disagree on now, much wider than the kinds of things they disagreed on then. It seems to me, you tell me if I'm wrong. Well, I think I think certainly our, uh, the the loss of faith in American institutions, which I mentioned before, yeah. seems to be greater yeah. than previously, yeah. and some that are simply just not going to come back. Right. It's not a question of do we bounce back. Right. I, I think that that ship has sailed. Okay. At the same time, though, you know, Nixon coined that idea in his most famous speech of November third, nineteen sixty nine, as president, the silent majority. The silent majority. Yeah. And it wasn't a new idea. Nope. It came from, actually, you know, the 19th century, and FDR popularized it as the silent man during yep. the New Deal, the yep. person who pays his taxes and go to work right. and doesn't care about government handouts. Right. Wallace appealed directly to that group in the late 1960s. Yep. And I think today there are still, and Chris Trump obviously capitalized more than anybody yep. uh, on that group in recent memory. Yep. And I still think there are an awful lot of, uh, uh, call it silent majority, or maybe we've outgrown that term and we need a new one. I think there are a lot of people who've gotten used to doing without Washington, who've yep. turned off the cable news, yep. Who, who've turned down social media, or at least moved to other platforms in some cases, I think there is still this group around the broad center, uh, on both sides of the broad center, who, 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 who do care about institutions yeah. and do care about the country and, and their families and our schools and what's happening on our campuses and I don't know what they are yet. Maybe we haven't figured out how to define them politically, and there hasn't been a candidate yet who can capture them and articulate them and appeal to them. But I do think those millions of Americans do still exist. The non-shouters, he called them, the non-demonstrators. Professor, this has been wonderful. Luke Nichter, thank you so much, sir. A very happy Thanksgiving to you. I hope we can do it again. I'd love to. My pleasure. Thank you, sir. Portions of this show brought to you by our good friends at Y-Refi. They have a secure investment, and it actually helps people. It's an investment where you can earn up to a 10.25% fixed rate of return. It's not correlated to the Federal Reserve or the stock market. A lot of flexibility. You're in control. You can turn your income on or off. You can compound it. There are no fees, absolutely no fees. Peace of mind, no attack on principle if you ever need your money back. And you'll get your monthly statement with no surprises. This is a secure collateralized portfolio, and it may very well be a better option for you and where you have your money now. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com. Or give them a call at 888-YREFI-24, 888-YREFI-24. Um, yeah, and they're local. That's right. They're on Chauncey Lane right in North Phoenix. You can visit with them. I've been there many times, and you won't get a sales pitch. You won't be asked to sign anything. Why refi? Bestwhyrefi.com. Uh, closing out, yeah, I was just thinking about the Nixon 1968 convention speech. Uh, Professor Nichter spoke of, you know, our democracy, our Republican form of government. It's 
us. It's people. It's not institutions. And it's going to rely on, to the degree we can recombine it and put this thing together again, it's going to rely on the kinds of things Nixon spoke about at his convention speech in 1968. The quiet voice and the tumult and the shouting, the voice of the great majority of Americans, the forgotten Americans, the non-shouters, the non-demonstrators, those who are not racist or sick, they are not guilty of the crime that plagues the land. He said they are black and they are white, they're native-born and foreign-born, they're young and they're old, they work in America's factories, they run America's businesses, they serve in government, they provide most of the soldiers who died to keep us free, they give drive to the spirit of America. They give lift to the American dream. They give steel to the backbone of America. They are good people. They are decent people. They work, and they save, and they pay their taxes, and they care. And like Theodore Roosevelt, he said, they know that this country will not be a good place for any of us to live unless it is a good place for all of us to live in. And that's the real voice of America. Let us hope so. Let us hope so. And to the degree you have it and you see it, and to the degree that you can help make it more so, let's be thankful for all of that, shall we? On behalf of Mr. David Dahl, on behalf of Mr. Bill, on behalf of the whole here, the whole team here, let me wish you all a very happy Thanksgiving. No swans, no eels. Don't go to Encanto Park and take a swan for a traditional feast. But be blessed. God bless. Class dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.